I love the fact that we're going to be known as the hot dog ministry. Like you can, yeah, that's right. Like there's the pizza ministries, there's the whatever ministries, but we're going to be the hot dog ministry. That's what's up. Not only do we read our Bibles, but we eat hot dogs. That's right, Caleb. I'm trying to think through what, what would you expect out of a hot dog ministry? Well, yeah, of course, brats and hot dogs, but no, actually not brats. Brats, you know, that's a brat ministry. This is a hot dog ministry. We don't mess around with brats. We only eat food that you microwave. That is how I prefer my hot dogs, microwaved with a Mountain Dew, three hot dogs, stripe of ketchup and mustard in the van with a paper plate. That was what I would eat many nights heading to soccer practice. That is such a terrible, yeah, I got one. Yeah, Reagan, woohoo. That's a terrible pre-soccer practice meal. Three hot dogs, Mountain Dew. Reed, you agree? We played a lot of soccer at the Send Retreat. Did you ever do three hot dogs and a Mountain Dew before soccer? Little Caesar pizza. Oh my goodness. Reed throwing down and then throwing up. That is what Reed would do at soccer practice. Nice. I wonder why I was on JV. I do not know. All right. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open up to Acts 17. We are going to work through this entire chapter tonight, which is really exciting. We have been going through the book of Acts, looking at stories of how the first believers in Christ responded to the gospel. When Jesus died and rose again, how did the first followers respond? And we've been seeing over and over again that they responded by leveraging their life for the sake of the gospel. So last week we saw that for Paul or Saul, that looked like him coming to faith and making a public proclamation that he was in Christ and beginning his ministry. And tonight we are going to look at one of his most famous sermons in Acts 17. It's called the Areopagus Address. Um, so that is where we're going to be at. To lead up to it, we're going to look first at the context. What led up to this address? And then second, what was the address itself? So Acts 17, what is the context that led to this address? All right, so we're going to start right in verse 1. So we're going to just work through the context. I'm going to point out several things as we go. So Paul and some companions are making their way, uh, traveling to various cities as they're going. They're both starting new churches. They're also strengthening believers who are already there, strengthening churches that are already there. And so it picks up in verse one, they are going to a town called Thessalonica. I practiced these two A words twice, cannot get them. So we're just going to either say hard word or I'm going to guess. Here we go. After they passed through Amphipolis, yeah, and Apollonia, oh wow, that was, that was rough. Okay, here we go. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as you, uh, where there's a Jewish synagogue, and as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a large number of the leading women. So Paul, Silas, their companions, they show up in Thessalonica. They begin to go to the synagogues for three Jewish Sabbaths. And what do they do? Verse two, 
They reasoned with them from the scriptures. Guys, first thing I wanna point out as we go through the context is it is so critical that we are people who know our Bibles, that everything about our life is shaped by the Bible, that when we go to talk to people about God's truth, about the gospel, about how it should impact their life, that we don't just say our opinions and think, things that we think are true, but that we anchor them in the scriptures. Guys, everything that I say up here has to be shown to you from the scriptures. Colton asked me an amazing question this week about how to look for a church. And one of the first things that I said is, is the preaching from the Bible? Meaning, does the guy who gets up on stage, does he just tell you what he thinks and then maybe finds one or two verses that backs up what he's saying? Or does he open up the Bible and from scripture point to something and say, this is why we do this? Like this is literally why I'm making this a big point because it says he reasoned from the scriptures. So then the application to us is, all right, everything we believe, everything we teach needs to be from the scriptures. And what was he doing as he was going through the scriptures? Verse three, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. That was the message that he is proclaiming. So keep that in mind. We'll circle back to that statement in a minute. So Paul and Silas, they persuade some, they, they get a large number of God-fearing Greeks and as well as a number of leading women. And then what happens? Verse five, but the Jews became jealous and they brought, brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out into the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So Paul and Silas are doing ministry in Thessalonica. Some people get jealous. The Jews get jealous. They form a mob of wicked men, of wicked people in the market. They start a riot. They're apparently staying at Jason's house. They go to Jason's house and they drag him out of the house and say, what's going on? These men that have turned the world upside down have come here too. And they're saying what? That there is another king. Jesus. Jesus is the king. We saw that last week in Acts 1, or 1, or 1 Timothy 1, 17, to the king eternal. That is absolutely the message that they were preaching. Guys, let me point out, when we're committed that Jesus is the king, we should expect and anticipate opposition. Jason is literally dragged out of his house by a mob and a riot for what he believed. Why do you think it's so strange that from time to time you might feel out of place for what you believe? There are people being dragged out of their houses because we believe that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise again from the dead. Like you believe, if you're a Christian in this room, you believe that somebody came 2000 years ago, died on a cross and that saved us from our sins. Then he rose again from the grave and you expect no opposition or resistance in your life. We should anticipate that. 
So this riot happens. They got to get Paul out of there. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue. Again, the same pattern of the Jews. Verse 11, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women, as well as men. What do we see again about the Bereans? As Paul shows up into Berea, what does he do? He opens up scripture again. He begins to proclaim again that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise again from the dead. And as the Bereans are hearing this, what do they do? They open up their Bibles and see, okay, is what he's saying, does that line up with what God's word says? Again, guys, this is such a critical truth that it's now two points of my sermon. We have got to be people who know our Bibles, who study our Bibles, who examine them. One of my favorite moments, Emma, here it comes. I asked Emma's permission for this. One of my favorite moments of this entire semester is one of the things that I was teaching. Emma was curious about it. She felt like there were some things that I emphasized that I could have said different. And as she opened up her Bible, she said, man, I don't know. I'm curious how Stephen thinks this lines up with what I'm seeing. So in all like human humility, gentleness, kindness. She came to me and she said, hey, Stephen, can I meet with you and ask you a few questions? So we sat down after Salt and she showed me some of the things that she felt like I was not representing well in the scriptures. And I loved it. It was such an incredible moment where a junior in college cares so much that God's truth is accurately represented on this stage that she would bring her Bible and say, hey, I don't know if you said that right. And I was like, oh my word. Emma, you are so, you've got it. You are so right. I totally messed up on that. I'm sorry that I didn't either study long enough or think about that aspect. You are so right. Guys, I am a person. I can totally mess up and I need you to serve everyone else in this room by being so committed to your Bible that you would know when I might get it wrong and then care so much about the faith of the other people in this room that you come and say, hey, I don't know if what you said actually lines up with this point or with this verse or with this passage. Emma, thank you. Snaps for Emma. Keep them going. Guys, it was two sermon points that we should care about our Bibles. Wow! Music majors at UNI, you are proud of this room. That is great. Second thing to point out about the bring-ins. Twice now we have seen uh, the author Luke mentioned something very particular. That as Paul is going to these cities and doing ministry, there's one particular group that he continues to highlight are coming to faith. And that is leading women and prominent women. Twice he mentions that leading women, prominent women were coming to faith. Guys, the New Testament has an incredibly positive view of the role of women within the church. The New Testament wants women to lead in significant ways in the life of the church. The church cannot be healthy if you women do not contribute with the gift that God has given you. And we have some amazing women in this room who are leading in incredible ways. Anyone with me with that statement? Yes, thank you. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Guys, we have a new intern that is gonna start next fall. Her name is Ellie Glody, and Ellie Glody is amazing. I did not get permission for this. Matthew, yes, she is amazing. Um, 
I was sending out some messages last night to try to coordinate a time when we could meet with some of the new interns, things like that. I get a text message back at 5.01 a.m. this morning. And the reason is Ellie every single day is so disciplined and so committed to getting up, spending time with God, reading her Bible, praying, getting ready to be able to lead her connection group well, her connection group well, shepherd them, that she is setting an alarm and is disciplined to get up, to spend time with God and to start her day with that. I was so encouraged and convicted when I woke up. I think it was maybe 6.25. So I was like, dang it, Ellie, that is awesome. I want to be the sort of leader that follows Ellie's example. Guys, one of the first things I do every single semester when we plan the teaching series is after I schedule my sermon reps, I think, okay, the next person I need to schedule to have a significant leadership moment on Thursday night is Laura Benson. That is a very intentional decision because she is leading at such a high level in this ministry. She needs the opportunity to, opportunity to lead in a significant way in this context. So that's why we have her do sessions like determining God's will for your life or interviewing the Bonners who are going over to East Asia. We want her to lead in a significant way and for you guys to see strong female leadership within the church. So men, do not leave tonight without thanking and expressing your appreciation for the women in this room. Let's continue. What's funny about that? <laughs> if we don't say thank you, we're idiots. Okay. Verse 13 is where we're at. Who shows back up? The Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Then after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. Okay, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God as well in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling them what? The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so Paul goes to Athens. He's waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas to join him in Athens. And while he is waiting, what do we see? We see that he is deeply distressed over what? That this city was full of idols. Guys, what motivated Paul's missional mindset? What motivated his evangelism? It was his deep distress that people were worshiping things that were worthless, things that would lead to their ruin. And it was out of this compassion and deep distress that he goes to the synagogue and begins to reason. And once again, what does he reason? What is the thing that he is trying to convince them of? The good news that Jesus rose again. Guys, everything about Paul's ministry revolved around the gospel, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, that Jesus was king. The good news that, uh, that Jesus 
rose from the dead. Guys, Paul had what we could say is a gospel-centered ministry. So often we think that we need to only talk about the gospel when we share it to non-believers. But the gospel needs to be the thing that our evangelism is centered around, our discipleship is centered around, our ministry is centered around, our lives are centered around. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And everything in our life should orient around that truth. When I went home tonight, uh, Natalie picked up some books earlier today and it struck me, I looked at our bookshelf and on my bookshelf was a book from seminary called Systematic Theology, 2,000 pages on who God is, what Christianity is, an explanation of the gospel in 2,000 pages. Sitting on top of Systematic Theology was a children's book called Who is God? Eight pages that explained who God was. Guys, the gospel is not something that we move on from, but something that we move deeper into. It is simple enough that it can be boiled down to eight pages in a children's book. And it's deep enough that it can be 2000 pages of a seminary level book. And those two things can be sitting on top of each other on my bookshelf. Guys, we do not move on from the reality that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Instead, we understand that deeper and allow that truth to shape everything about our life, our ministry. So he's in Athens. He's debating Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, guys who thought pleasure was the chief end of man or rationality was the chief end of man. And as he's debating them, he is winsome enough to the point that verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill and said, may we learn more about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we wanna know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time doing nothing else but telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to hear the next new theory, the next new conspiracy, maybe, who knows, but they just wanted to hear new things. So as a group, it's think, like, think a lecture hall, maybe like this, and people would come, they'd sit, they'd hear some philosopher present this new idea, and then they would discuss it, debate it, contemplate it, and then they'd move on. So they invite Paul, and here is Paul's address, part two, the address, verse 22. So he starts this way. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Now, I don't think that this is lip service. I think Paul is genuinely affirming something about their culture. He's saying, guys, I can appreciate that you think religion is valuable which that is a great lesson for us to learn. How often do we have an inability in our society to say anything about the people on the other side have something that we could affirm in them? So Paul starts there. He affirms something about their culture. I see that you're extremely religious, but then has the courage to step in and challenge them. Verse 23. For as I was passing through, Observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar to which was inscribed to an unknown God. And then he says this, therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. So he says, hey, I see that you're religious. This religion leads you to know that there is something outside of you that you were created to worship. So much so that as you are filling your city with idols, 
you even have an altar to an unknown God. And what he's about to say is, hey, behind all of your worship, there's a sense within you that knows that there is a God intrinsically, that you intuitively know there's something outside of you. This is him, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. There is a creator. And because he is the creator, he has the authority over heaven and earth. He is Lord. And as creator, he is self-sufficient. He has eternally existed. Nothing caused his existence. And it's through him that our universe came to exist, to have a cause outside of itself. Then he goes on to describe God more, verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And he has determined their appointed times and boundaries and where they live. He's saying this God is the source of life. When God was forming Adam in the beginning, he gave him breath. He got down on his knees and grabbed Adam from the dust and breathed into his nostrils. But just imagine that. Like imagine the intimacy, the closeness, the nearness. God could have literally snapped his fingers and breath would have entered Adam, but instead he wanted to be near to humanity. The Epicureans that Paul was debating, they would say that God didn't care about humanity. But Paul is saying, no, God cared so much about that. He breathed into us. And from Adam, he made all of humanity. God is sovereign over all life. He has given everyone purpose and has ordained all your days according to his plans. That's what he's saying, that he determined the times and places, the times and boundaries where we would live. Guys, there's a direct correlation to an event's significance and the amount of time that you plan for it. Take, for example, a wedding. You spend maybe a year planning for a wedding. That's a significant event. Your life is so significant to God that he planned every one of your days, times and boundaries. Why do you do this? Well, then he answers that verse 27. Here's what he says. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. He's saying, hey, he did this. He created you so that you would seek him, that we would have a relationship with him. You were created to glorify God, to find your joy in him and to be in a relationship with him. And so you get this idea that's like, God created you that you might reach out and find him. But he's not far, he's near. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. You live and move and have your being in him. Everything in your life is sustained actively by God. He's saying you were created for a relationship with the eternal God. To highlight this, he quotes one of their poets who says, we are even his offspring. So then if we're his offspring, what? Well, he answers that verse 29. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul's saying God is not dependent on anything. You are dependent on God. Therefore, worship God. Now he's saying, look at that gold and silver and stone. 
Gold and silver stone, dependent on you. You have to sustain it. Therefore, don't worship it. He's saying, worship the one you're dependent on, not the thing that's dependent on you. Don't worship idols. So what does this mean? What does Paul's message mean for our life? Guys, I think if Paul were here today, he would look at us and preach a very similar sermon. He would look at us and say, hey, you all are extremely religious. There are a lot of things in this room that you worship, that you have thousands of gods you are worshiping. But what you don't realize is that every single one of them points to the reality that there is something within you that is longing for your needs to be fulfilled. He'd say, you're worshiping the God of romance, the God of money, the God of career, the God of friends, the God of your own independence. But what you don't realize is that you are actually longing not for that thing, but what that thing provides. And because of that, you are worshiping an unknown God. And that God is the God of the Bible, the God that all of your longings come back to. You're worshiping at the feet of money, career, friends, love, but what you are really worshiping is the approval that those things bring, the significance that those things bring, the security, the control, the pleasure that those things bring. And what you don't realize is that is actually in your worship of those things that is revealing within you a longing for an unknown God that you are actually worshiping in ignorance. You long for a God who knows everything about you yet loves you. You long for a God who makes your life meaningful and gives you significance. You long for a God who fills you with joy, pleasure, and delight. You long for a God who gives you security and a sense of control and safety. And at the altar of a thousand false gods, you worship desperately trying to find fulfillment for those needs. And what that reveals is that there is a longing for an unknown God that you are actually worshiping in ignorance. A God who made the world and everything in it. A God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. A God who in him you have an approval that doesn't rest on you. A God who in him, you have a significance and a meaning and purpose in your life because you matter to him. A God who offers you a joy and satisfaction that you were created to have. A God who offers you a security that's not based on your ability to bring order to your life, but his ability to determine the times and boundaries of all things. There's an unknown God that you are worshiping and longing for in all the other things, all the thousands of false altars that you are bowing down to every day reveals that you have a longing for this unknown God. But the God of heaven is offering you in him fulfillment for those needs. How? How did God do that? It was necessary for the Messiah to come and suffer and to die and to rise again. On the cross, Jesus suffered the loss of approval. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus lost the sense of significance that he had. 
Philippians 2 said that he himself became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He humbled himself. Christ suffered on the cross the loss of pleasure. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of death. On the cross, Jesus suffered the loss of security. Isaiah 53, yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. The God who is unknown to you was known to Jesus for all of eternity. And yet he was cast out so that you could have belonging with God. So that the longings that all of your other worship reveal could find their place in the God who created the heavens and the earth, who is the Lord over all, who determined for you the times and boundaries of your life, who in him you have your life and breath and everything else. That as you worship these other things and discover and realize the longing that you have, that you might reach out and might find the God of the universe. So how do we respond to this? Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Repent of your false worship. Repent of your ignorance. Repent of your denial that God created the world. Repent of your rejection of him as Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Well, what does he say? Overlooking times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he set a day when he is going to judge the world. God is the creator. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign and he is the final judge. And all of us have rejected him and the command to us is to repent, to seek him, to reach out that we might find him. Now you might be saying, whoa, when have I rejected God? When when was it that I rejected God? And you might be thinking like, I can think of a lot of rules that I haven't broken and a lot of rules that other people have broken. And I, I struggle with this idea that I've rejected the God of the universe. Here's what I think is the problem with most of us. I think most of us think of God in the same way that we think of our government. That the government gives us rules and it's our job as responsible citizens to follow those rules. And if we follow them, don't cause trouble. The government will pretty much leave us alone and we're a good standing with the government. That's how most of us think intuitively about God and our relationship with him. But what did Paul say? He said, you're his offspring. How does that dynamic shift when we realize that our relationship with God isn't this citizen to government relationship, but is actually a father to offspring relationship? How does that dynamic shift? Last night, we were driving to Target. And my kids love Target. I don't know why. They just love running errands. They love Menards. They scream Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby! Every time we drive past Hobby Lobby or see an orange sign. It's just Hobby Lobby is the place for them. They love running errands. Uh, we'll probably run some errands tomorrow. And if we, every night at supper, we do favorites throughout the day. Like, hey, what was your favorite, Isla? What was your favorite, Jack? If we did an errand, it's Menards. 
Menards, for sure Menards. That was my favorite. I'm like, Jack, my man, we're gonna, we're gonna have fun together, buddy. So we're driving to Target last night. We had a babysitter on Tuesday night. And so this is Wednesday, driving to Target. And we're laughing, we're having a good time. We're joking around. Isla, you know, from the backseat, all of a sudden says this. Mommy, last night, I really missed you. I didn't miss daddy. <laughs> oh, oh, what does that do to a dad's heart? It crushes it. And I'm like, oh, Isla, that's so mean. Like, why would you say that? She goes, oh, no, 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 I'm joking, daddy. I'm like, oh, that's a terrible joke. Like, <laughs> my heart is crushed. Like, ah. What's the difference between citizen and government and offspring and dad? Guys, the standard, what constitutes rejection with your government is simply breaking the rules. But there's no emotion to that. But with a father, not only can you reject your father by breaking his rules, you can also reject your father by being indifferent towards him. By looking to things outside of him to satisfy what he himself has promised to satisfy for you. To be distracted by things in this world and in the midst of that say, Oh, I believe there's a God. Oh, I believe he's there. Oh, I might even give him an hour of my week on Sunday or Thursday. Like, oh yeah, like I believe. But throughout your week, what you're telling God the Father is, I didn't miss you. My career, yeah, God, I didn't miss you. Romance, I didn't miss you. Money, I didn't miss you. It is just as crushing to a father to be rejected through indifference as it is to be rejected through outright disobedience. You were not created to have a government-citizen relationship with God. You were created as his offspring to have a relationship with him, father to child. And the reality is every time we have been distracted and been found worshiping at the altar, of a thousand other gods, hoping they would fulfill and satisfy our needs. We are looking to God and saying, yeah, I didn't miss you. And that is rejection. And that rejection deserves punishment. That rejection has a penalty. All of humanity, because of our rejection to God the Father, now stands condemned before him. And it's in this environment that God the Father looked down from heaven. And though he had eternally existed as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, enjoying the relationship within the Trinity, he looked at the Son and said, I will send you to earth because of my love for the humanity that rejected me. And I will sever my relationship with God the Son on the cross. I will pour out my wrath on him so that the humanity who has rejected me for a thousand other gold and silver and stone gods could be restored into relationship with me. And it's on the cross that God the Father let his wrath fall on God the Son, his one and only beloved offspring, so that we could become offspring of God and have a relationship with him in view of your sin, in view of your rejection, in view of God's grace through Jesus, repent. 
tonight is the night of repentance for some of you in here. That as you are hearing the reality that there is a God that you were created for, as you are hearing the reality that you have rejected him through your sin, but now coming to understand that it is through his grace that you are saved, you need to respond in repentance and belief. What is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging your sin and the judgment that it brought upon you. And belief is looking to Jesus, the man who was appointed to judge the world, but who rose again, who suffered and died and saying, I trust in him and his sacrifice that he lost the father on the cross so that I could come into relationship with him. God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. How did the people respond? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There were three responses. One group ridiculed and rejected. If as you're hearing this message tonight, that is you, rejection and ridicule, my plea with you is that when you are in the quiet and stillness of this summer and you begin to realize that there are longings in your life that can't be satisfied by the things in this world, consider, is it possible that there's a God that I was created for? The second group, they responded in intrigue. We wanna know more. If that's you, that is awesome. It is only worthwhile to explore the most influential man and book of all history, the Bible and Jesus Christ. Meet with someone and read the Bible with them. For those of you in Christ, it is very possible that though you are in Christ functionally in your day-to-day -day life, you have found yourself worshiping once again at the altar of things that are false gods, hoping that they provide for you something that is to be found in Christ. What are those? Again, repent, acknowledge those and believe once again that God's grace through Christ is sufficient to forgive and save you. And lastly, those of you who are finding yourself having the same response as Dionysius and Damaris and the others, that as you're hearing this, your heart is cut and you are realizing for the first time that you are in need of Jesus. The directive to you tonight is simple, repent and believe. Change your mind and attitude towards sin and let that begin to change your behavior over time and believe in the salvation that we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, so often I have a posture towards you that is citizen to government. God, I just think I need to check boxes and maintain this superficial relationship with you. And as long as I do a certain number of things, then we're good. But God, you are the God of heaven. You are the God who created the world and everything in it. You're the God who gives us life and breath and everything else. And you created us to have a relationship with you, father to offspring, where we would bring you glory as image bearers, where we would have a relationship with you marked by obedience and joy and delight and love and intimacy. 
And God, I pray that you would reveal to us these false idols, these altars that we so often bow down to that are distracting us and keeping us from having the relationship with you that you designed us to have. God, I pray that we would respond in repentance again and belief again, that we would acknowledge the things in our life that we are looking to to find fulfillment, to find approval, to find significance, to find security, to establish for ourselves a righteousness. God, open our eyes to see how they are worthless pursuits. God, that we were created for a relationship with you and that was provided for us through the death of your son, that the Messiah came and suffered and rose. God, that Jesus is king, that there is good news about Jesus and his resurrection. God, it's good news. It's not something that there is left for us to do or accomplish, it's news. It is stating a fact that has happened. And that is that on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And in that moment, while he was forsaken by you, he provided for us a way to have relationship with the God of the universe. And God, I don't care if students in here have known those truths since they were five, we so often forget that. And it leads to insecurity, shame, guilt. It leads to, to being distracted by the things of this world. I pray that we would remember that and it would begin to transform us. And like Paul, that our lives will be, would be gospel-centered that our ministry would be gospel-centered, that we would be people who search the scriptures daily. And in all of it, that we would cultivate the relationship with you that we were created for. Amen.